the work, I think, is certainly like fight systemic racism and also to like make sure that uh, to the extent possible, the communities and spaces that we're creating are operating with a sensitivity to those systemic realities. That's like what, what inclusion is. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages, a podcast that explores sex and eroticism through the lenses of art, culture, politics, spirituality, and racial justice. Today I'm speaking with William Winters, named in 2014 by the San Francisco Chronicle as the de facto king of the East Bay polyamory scene, a title that he's been working to earn ever since. An activist, educator, and intimacy coach, William is the founder and co-producer of Bonobo Network, an Oakland-based organization and community that throws play parties and events to help people become more sexually informed, liberated, communicative, and kind, so that we can all get the pleasure, connection, and understanding we deserve. A campaign strategist by profession, culture nerd by avocation, and philosopher by major, William has been featured in San Francisco Magazine, KQED's Forum, and the New York Times. We speak about inclusivity and diversity within polyamorous and sex-positive communities, consent as care, and about the intersection of activism and erotic liberation. All my favorite things. Hey, William. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about all of your exciting projects. Sure, Leanne. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, I would love for you to orient us and just tell us a little bit about Bonobo Network and how it formed, how you got involved with it, or how you started it, and give us a little bit of a lay of the land. So Bonobo Network brings together people who understand that monogamy isn't right for everyone and that pleasure comes in many different packages to become more sexually informed, liberated, consensual, communicative, kind, and inclusive so that we can all get the pleasure, connection, and understanding that we all deserve, right? So um, what we, a lot of what we've done over the years is you know, sort of building community and connection and capacity in the sex positive and non-monogamous worlds. Um, one of the ways we've done that is by throwing play parties, creating um, these, you know, sort of safer spaces for people to come together in the celebration of the erotic. Um, we are a lot more than just a play party, I would say. Um, like the the group of folks we've assembled over the years are a legit community. And, um, you know, we put a lot of effort into the sort of community building aspect and cultivating that sense of community, which of course uh, has come in really handy in the face of a global pandemic when you can't exactly you know, get down in the same way as we've been getting down these last nine or 10 years. Mm. As for how we got together or how the group started, um, it basically began as, um, you know, a party that I threw for my 31st birthday and, um, uh, you know, 25 people in my little two bedroom apartment in Oakland. And, um, you know, it just sort of, balloon from there. I think it dovetailed with my growing presence and leadership in 
the Bay Area non-monogamous community. Um, I was at the time leading an event called the Open Relationship Community Potluck, and I was also um, moderating the Facebook group. And at the time, it was the biggest regular event for non-monogamous folks in the Bay. And so there was just a lot of, um, there were lots of um, happy feedback in virtual, virtual circles. Cool. So yeah, I mean, so you started with the party in your poem and and it was a play party. You set the stage for that to be what that party was going to be about. Like what what did you go into that first event wanting to create? Really good question. Um you know, when so like when I drew this party, I'd been living in the bay for about a year and a half maybe. Um I, I landed here in November 2008. Uh, so the first party was in like July, 2010, you know? And so like my network was just forming and like my sense of possibility was really just sort of being created. And so earlier that year, I'd been invited to my first sort of larger scale private play party. And, you know, there was this amazing opening circle and, um, you know, the, it was this sort of workshoppy sort of thing that um, was really like heart opening and connecting. And it also did a really excellent job of letting everyone in attendance know exactly what was expected mm-hmm. of them, you know, um, not just in a, from a sort of like logistical perspective or from a rules perspective, but also from a sort of emotional perspective. Right. And, um, after experiencing that, I just knew that that was the kind of experience I wanted to create. Mm -hmm. So um, I brought some of that experience and some of that learning into that first party. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that opening circle and other opening circles that I'm sure you've since facilitated or been part of, because I think that is so important in setting the stage and not all play parties do that or do that well. And, um, and, you know, especially when you're talking about, it's not just about the rules, but it's about it it being heart opening. It's about, you know, guidelines for engagement and opportunities. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear a little more about what those circles consist of and what you have found to be effective in, in setting the stage and creating a safe space for people. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that a lot of different social technologies could be effective, you know, like there are, there are many roads to Rome, as they say. And, um, I don't claim to have any like sort of, uh, lock on, on the one right way. Um, but I will say that like the most effective openings that I've seen and that I've led, uh, include a few elements, you know, um, one is that, um, You know, people need to understand that, um, like, they need to communicate to folks, um, like, what they're there for, you know, like, like, what, like, what the common project is, what everyone is getting up to together, you know, and I feel like that's where I, that's one of the places I most commonly see opening circles like fail, you know, like not do well, like not sort of like getting that, like we're all in this together, you know, sort of, sort of sense, because it's from that sense that people get the sense that like, you know, um, 
that like folks in the space might have each other's backs in a particular way. Um, and actually um, playing that up and, and like sort of setting the expectation that, you know, like in the space, we like have each other's backs and we're looking out for each other and so on and so forth is just like, uh, to me, so important for um, uh, weaving the many individuals in attendance together uh, into, you know, a community, because that's what a community is. Like a community is, isn't just a group. It's a, it's a, it's an entity, um, a collective entity where its members feel like, you know, other folks might have their backs when things go wrong. Um, um, you know, uh, I think that there is another important element of, of just like conveying the rules of the road. So, you know, like what are the cultural expectations? Um, you know, um, like for us, for instance, it's not just conveying that consent is important. You know, it's also making sure that everyone in attendance understands like what deep consent really means and really looks like. And, and understanding that consent isn't just like the pro forma thing that you ask for that is a speed bump to getting what you want. <laughs> you know, it's like a subjectifying practice that like really puts the well-being and autonomy and pleasure of the people you're connecting with, like at the center. You know, it's a practice that's grounded in like empathy and care and concern. Mm-hmm. Right. And so being and so um you know, taking the time to actually communicate that, like, again, it's like not just the rule, but it's like the, the North star, you know, mm-hmm. like the thing behind the rule that um, everyone can, can sort of be aligned with. Because when you give people not just the rule, but like the North star, then uh, like the principle, then like anyone can hopefully look around and be like, oh, like that person may be asking for consent technically, but like they are out of sync with this principle that I understand. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and yeah. And so, and so, um, um, like all of that, I think is really important to um, getting people in sync with the culture and um for us like our culture is um is non-pressuring and you know uh we're rooted in a principle i like to call like high possibility low expectation um Mm. and uh i think that having that principle be like at the sort of center of our of our existence like that um you know just create the vibe and i think that like, like vibe is the sort of felt sense of the culture you know <laughs> um it creates a, a vibe that is that, that makes for a sexy party uh but also hopefully one where you're where like no one's going to experience a lot of pressure to do anything that you know they hesitate to it's a it's a it's cultivating a spirit of invitation i would say 
um, rather than expectation. Mm, I love that. I love that so much. And I also love how you were framing consent because I think, again, to think about it as caring for the other's well-being, I actually don't know that I've heard it so explicitly presented as like, that is what consent is. And I think it really shifts the onus, like you're saying, from somebody trying to get something and then otherwise being rejected or denied that thing to it's it's the like not that it's all goal oriented but if you're thinking about the objective of consent and asking for consent if the objective is to be looking out for one another and having for one another's well-being then no matter what whether the answer is yes I'd like to engage no I would not the objective has been fulfilled and you you both like created that together and um and the possibility and no expectation is is really beautiful. Good way to live life, I think. Good way to bring that out into the world in some ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so much of what we talk about in our culture setting activities in Bonobo, I think of as as just stuff we all should have learned in kindergarten. Right. Like <laughs> you know, high possibility, low expectation, like so much is possible. You're, no one owes you anything. Uh, consent, it's like ask before you touch. It's really important. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Kindergarten play parties is what they should be called. So what are some of the activities that you do? Um, some of the activities at the parties or in the opening circle? Or either, both. Um, so I, I'll just say that like... Um, you know, our opening circles have undergone a little bit of a transformation, um, partly because um, a few years ago, um, we, like the opening circles stopped being the primary point of transferring culture from organizers to attendees um and instead we started requiring that everyone who attends our events first attend an orientation right and so that has allowed us to use the opening circles to um you know certainly like still convey a culture because some things are just something just bare repeating even and maybe even especially <laughs> to the more experienced people who can sometimes like you know get a little lax on their consent practices as they get more comfortable in the space. Um, um, but, you know, so the opening circles have been, have become places where, you know, we can do more like participatory, you know, activities and exercises and like emphasize different, um, different practices. Um, um, for example, at, um, our opening party in 2019, and only party in 2019, I should say, thanks COVID, mm-hmm. um, we invited Celeste Hirschman and Danielle Harrell from Somatica, which is a sex and relationship coaching method to like lead an exercise for the opening circle. And so, um, you know, they did an exercise, an interactive exercise that was like grounded in consent, but that really like dropped people into their bodies, into like a more playful mode. Um, and, you know, really helped the party to like get off to an even sexier start, I would say, Mm. you know? Um, and, and, and I would say that like, even though, um, uh, like most parties, I would say, like the, the opening circle ends, people kind of like stand around awkwardly and 
do some sorting that, that, that hasn't typically happened as much in Bonobo because it is such a long-standing community and there are so many pre-existing relationships. They're just, sometimes it's a little bit like off to the races you know, after the opening circle. And so uh, the activity that Celeste and Danielle led just sort of amplified that a little bit, which was really cool. Um, and, um, you know, as for the rest of the party, I mean, so we typically have a DJ, um, or have DJs playing all night. We, we book great DJs. Um, uh, there's a, a DJ duo, JK 47, who have come on as our music directors and, um, uh, they're amazing. And we had like an amazing lineup this year before again, COVID. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes we'll book live musicians like Rachel Lark has uh, played at our events before and um, um, you know but, I mean so we'll have we'll have workshops sometimes like we'll have workshops before the party starts and so um, you know we'll give people a chance to learn different skills we've had Midori come to teach about like BDSM communication and um, rope and we've had um, Marsha Brzezinski uh, teach. She's an amazing uh, sex educator and um, um, yeah, you know, we, 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 we want to make the parties like opportunities to connect and also opportunities to learn if folks want to learn, you know, we've had folks come teach about like humiliation play and about, you know, uh, BDSM communication and about, um, and about, um, you know, consent, of course, and just about, you know, uh, female ejaculation or squirting, like uh, just so many, so many topics. That's awesome. I love that you're making it an educational as well as experiential space. What, what's the, what are the venues that you hold and what is the sort of layout? Like, is it sort of, do you have designated spaces for designated, designated play areas or, you know, is it sort of open layout or yeah, well, how to, how do you navigate space? Yeah, um, I think it's really important in these parties, especially, again, when you're trying to cultivate a sense of community, to have um, social spaces that are separate from the sexual spaces, you know. And uh, not every venue allows that, particularly because, you know, our parties tend to be big. But for the most part, you know, we, we only select venues, you know, we I just like venues where that's where that's possible, and so, um, and so, um, I guess the first thing I should say is that the parties uh, tend to be 150 to like 200 or 225 people. Um, that's big. 150 is on the on the small end for us, and that's usually for our daytime parties because um, those are typically held at like private homes with swimming pools um, because what's better than a daytime of course <laughs> sex party around a big pool yeah <laughs> I can't think of anything better than that yeah yeah <laughs> um, yeah and so uh, like for the, for those parties we'll, we'll tend to have 150 people and you know we'll again try to have like um, social spaces that are uh somewhat separate from the sexual spaces although you know uh, particularly when the venue has a private enough backyard um then you can certainly have like sexual play outside and then 
have like the DJ set up outside and have the speakers be a bit of a sound curtain so that uh, the it, you know the, the sex sounds don't like sort of waft into the neighborhood. Um, I'm thinking of like the sounds of sex wafting over the Berkeley Hills and. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it happens just because people have sex, but, you know, I, I'm also sure that people aren't used to, like, hearing, like, dozens of people having sex. And so, um, you know, just, like, asking people in the opening circle to just, like, try to be, like, quieter than the music <laughs> right. um, uh, is the play, you know. Um, and then, um, but, yeah, we, we all, so we always have, like, a dedicated play space. We'll try to have, like, one space that's set up as a dungeon so that there's, um, you know, BDSM play can happen anywhere, but, you know, particularly for like more intense stuff that might be triggering, it's often nice to just be able to like go deep into that without having to worry about like, you know, whether you're gonna like trigger a bunch of vanilla folks or whatever. So, um, so having a dungeon space is pretty important. Um, we also have a room called the angel room and that's like a dedicated, non-sexual space um um it's a space to get away from the more intense energies of a party to maybe have a quiet moment um if folks need like emotional support then that's a really great place to go and you know have quiet conversation and you know you can even like cuddle just ask the people keep their cuddles like pg as opposed to you know r-rated um and, um, you know, and we actually have volunteers at the parties called Angels, and they're our space monitors, but they're also like the, um, they're also like our emotional support volunteers. So if someone is having a hard time, if they're feeling lonely, if they're feeling like they're having a hard time meeting people, um, if they're triggered because they see their partner is like hooking up with like a hot new thing and, you know, it's like, you know, just like hard for them for whatever reason, they can like talk to an angel and expect to get like some high quality listening, like not advice, but just like, you know, mm -hmm. listening and reflection and, and, um, you know, caring presence, you know, and then the angels use the angel room for, you know, offering as well. Are the angels trained or they're just very emotionally adept humans or who, who are the angels? Yeah, I mean, we do have um, uh, an internal angel training. We also, you know, encourage people to have, like, therapy and counseling. And, you know, we're in the Bay Area, so lots of, like, hippie personal transformation people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like, so, so people, like, with skills, like, with, like, active listening skills and so on and so forth to um, and practice supporting people emotionally to to do that. Cool. So talk a little bit about the demographics of like who, who comes to these parties. You were talking about that in some ways you've really built this community over the years. So a lot of people know each other. Um, what's, what's the sort of makeup in terms of who attends and how people find you and, um, age race, like who, who's, who's showing up at the door? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd say that because the party started off as like, my group of friends it um you know it, it has like reflected like my circles in a lot of ways and so um you know when i started throwing the party i was 
30 or 31 and you know now i'm 41 and um and so i'd say the party has like um aged as well so you know the the sort of biggest age band uh, in attendance is at like 35 to 44 age band um where before it was like you know probably 24 to 35 or mm-hmm. 25 to 34 or whatever um um yeah i'd say that um you know the sex positive and non-monogamous and bdsm communities uh in the bay area tend to be whiter than the um population at large um and i think that while bonobo network is more diverse than the like sort of bay area like poly uh you know sex positive bdsm network i say there's still a lot of work to do you know mm-hmm. um i think one of the things that's helped us is, you know, A, that like I'm a black person and, um, you know, that definitely, um, like having a black guy in front of the room, um, you know, I think like helps make the space more attractive to folks of color who get to like see someone in leadership who looks a little bit like them perhaps um um and and instills some confidence um and then the other thing is that you know a big part of my network has been the sort of bay area sort of non-profity social justice activist world and so you know lots of those folks have also um you know participated over the years and and still participate and um uh, that's also been helpful. Um, but like I said, I mean, I, I think that uh, um, uh, we still have work to do, like, you know, every other institution. And I and um, one of the strategies that, um, you know, we used to sort of help that is I, I started a second party or, or helped to start a second party. Um, called Express Yourself with um, uh, a dear friend um, in Bonobo. Um, And we later brought on a whole team of co-producers and um, it's called Express Yourself. And it's a POC exclusive event. And so um, we throw these parties quarterly. And um, the really cool thing about, about, um, express yourself is that it came at a time when I think there was actually a lot of demand for POC spaces and, and events. And so, and so, you know, um, completely independently, this um, amazing ecosystem of sex positive and kinky BDSM events was forming and, and, and groups was forming. And so there's, you know, uh, KPOC, Kinky People of Color, which grew out of, um, um, San Francisco, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the next generation, like the, the next gen poly community. Um, uh, there was, um, uh, Black Kink Bay Area, or BKBA. Uh, there's, um, Kinky Colorful and Conscious, which is a discussion group that, um, 
opening at Vox Body, which is a rogue studio in mm-hmm. Oakland. Uh, oh, and and Mission Control uh, also uh, helped to feed a POC party called Soul. And so that's also happening. So now, I mean, like there's this just incredible ecosystem that I'm just so uh, happy and proud to be a part of. And they take absolutely zero credit for um, um, because there's just like this uh, wonderful uh, ecosystem right now. And um, and I, I think that like supporting that ecosystem through Bonobo helps to uh, like, well, A, I'd say it's just like good in and of itself. <laughs> and then secondly, I think that it does help to like, sort of bring folks into Bonobo, create a little bit of a pipeline. So what do you attribute the initial lack of diversity in play spaces and in the poly community to? And how is the culture in these express yourself and in these other POC parties, how to, how does the vibe, as you were saying earlier, like, how does it feel different? Oh, well, I mean, uh, so the answer is systemic racism. Uh, (laughs) But particularly in those areas, like, you know, is it, is it something about, um, I mean, yes, of course, and everywhere, but in, in particular in the poly community, you know, like what, Right. Well, I mean, I think that, like, first off, I mean, there is, um, there, there is in the poly world, this tendency to think of what we do as, like, being this, like, super new, super special thing that, like, has its own vocabulary, and we are, like, constantly making up words, like, compersion and, you know, polysaturated, and that's what we describe our experiences. Um and the reality is that in many communities of color in the United States, um, you know, especially about the black communities that, you know, I know personally, um, like there's actually a long history of non-monogamy that, you know, has been like demonized in reports about the dissolution of the American family for generations, like going back to the, 60s and so um and so you know i think that uh part of it is that like when these conversations uh were sort of developing in like white spaces they were doing so largely as you know sort of white phenomenon and you know sort of separate from the experience of other folks who like have done it differently for a long time so that, that's one thing. Um, I think that secondly, um, you know, at least the sort of early practitioners of what we now call polyamory, like, uh, you know, have come from like white counterculture, you know, sort of um, more sort of like educated backgrounds that, you know, like were never like that sort of inclusive to begin with. And that's one of the reasons why I say that like systemic racism is, is like, Part of it is like, like what has sort of kept us um, separate before, like housing segregation and like lack of access to institutions and, you know, like that sort of thing. And like, so we see the knock on effects of those, of course, in our like leisure time activities and our like intimate activities. And, and um, the work, I think, is, um, you know, to like 
certainly like fight systemic racism, but then also to like make sure that uh, to the extent possible, the communities and spaces that we're creating are operating with a sensitivity to those uh, systemic realities. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's like what, what inclusion is. Totally. Thank you so much just for speaking to that. Cause I think it's especially that point you're making about the white phenomenon, like the phenomenon, the newness. Look, we we've now invented polyamory is is a really um interesting and important thing to presence. Yeah. yeah we we invented this thing that my cousin Pookie was doing when I was, you know, <laughs> when I was a kid, you know. <laughs> right. And and like as you were saying, the sort of demonization or vilification of of communities that were practicing those modalities prior to it then becoming, you know, sanctioned or respectable through the white, you know, um, construction of it. Um, yeah, we had Dr. Kim Talbert on a few weeks ago who was talking about uh, the institution of marriage and compulsory monogamy and how that became a tool of settler colonialism. And so just looking also at indigenous communities and how, and there's like a real irony there to look at in in how those practices were as you're saying like blamed for breaking up the nuclear family and you know deemed just threatening to american respectability and way of life and now here we're like in and then of course the like flourishing of polyamory and and that it's concentrated in these white communities at least in the public eye yeah and there are definitely folks who are just doing such a an amazing job of bringing these conversations um, to um, non-white communities. Like there's um, Ron Young, who founded Black and Poly, who's an amazing guy and and just a wonderful advocate for uh, non-monogamy in Black communities. He's a real resource to folks. Um, uh, And... um, yeah, I mean, you know, many other amazing sex educators and, and writers of color who, you know, are are sort of expanding the conversation and helping to like expand this like uh, sense of relational possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, what was your sort of route into? I know you you spoke about how you started the the party, but what? What about like in your twenties, or what? What was your sort of journey to towards non-monogamy and these explorative spaces? Yeah, good question. So, um, I am originally from South Louisiana. Uh, I grew up in this little town called New Iberia, and um, it is the home of Tabasco sauce, and it is the home of the equally famous Louisiana sugarcane festival. Um, my house was like surrounded by sugarcane on four sides. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I went to, to college at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. Um, that's where I really started getting exposed to the world. And in many ways, that's where I became like an activist and organizer. It's uh, where I first got exposed to the idea of polyamory or open relationships. But, you know, I didn't, really think that it could work and in fact when my current partner um Anna and I were sort of talking about it uh like 15 years ago like 2007 or something um uh you know we, we were both like thinking about the polyamorous people who we knew and it's like oh yeah those 
like those two open their relationship as a prelude to a breakup, like that relationship with the crash and burn. Like, uh, yeah, they just like weren't really models, you know. But we 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 had this conversation about our values and and realized that like our values were sort of aligned with non monogamy and. Um, I, I relayed this conversation to a coworker in the restaurant I used to work at, and she and she was like, "Oh, well, you know, I just got a copy of this book, The Ethical Slut, from the Women's Center book sale. Uh, Want to borrow it?" And so she just like handed me, you know, what I thought of as like the instruction manual to open relationships, and uh, uh, it seemed it seemed like a sign. So we started checking it out and reading the book and decided to give it a shot. And um, against all odds, uh, you know, <laughs> here we are, you know, 13 years later in the Bay. <laughs> what were the initial values? Because, you know, I think people come to, to polyamory through different as you said, all different routes to Rome. So what what were the sort of values that you honed in on that resonated with you in terms of the lifestyle? You know, we'd both been in relationships with pretty controlling people at, at various points previously. And we were sort of reflecting on that and and reflecting on on the idea that like relationships shouldn't be equivalent to ownership you know and that was sort of a stance that we attributed to these folks we've been in a relationship with, with before and um and so that idea was really important um you know the idea that i think i have a slightly different idea now but the idea that like jealousy was something that was like to be overcome and that it was like corrosive when it, uh, you know, sort of a main organizing principle of a relationship. Uh, that was, that was important at the time. Um, uh, and then of course, like freedom and autonomy, you know, that was really important to me certainly. And, and, um, uh, I think also just like the value of like pleasure and variety, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, also, also pretty relevant. Like I think I was my partner's like maybe her only sexual partner when we first started dating. And, you know, I think that one of the sort of reflections was like, well, like, is this it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. And so those were, were um, some of the ideas that, like, led us to consider it. And then we sort of got like, sort of caught up in, you know, the sort of poly philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, that you might read, like, the ethical slide or mm-hmm. such. Yeah, fifteen years is a is a success story indeed. <laughs> yeah, I think that like you know taking success like out of the, sure. sort of, the terminology you know, is <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah 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 yeah, yeah for sure <laughs> yeah 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that like I mean, w- one of the really interesting things um, uh, that I've seen as like we moved to the Bay and became like organizers in the non-monogamous world um, uh, and became like more visible. It's like it was almost like people had this like investment in like seeing us succeed succeed you know right. in the way of like longevity and you know like not breaking up or whatever and and um i just don't think that that's like the right measure of success you know like you can like i feel like the measure of success is like being able to to sort of uh like navigate what is in a relationship with like flexibility and love and skill and like staying in connection even through the hard parts even if like the formal relationship shifts which you know i'm, I'm quite sure i don't have to tell you but you know for our listeners uh you know it just feels like a like an important an important thing because you know relationships change and romantic relationships end and it doesn't mean that they're any less successful totally uh, certainly doesn't mean like uh, if a polyamorous relationship ends that like polyamory was the totally <laughs> totally I, I mean my favorite when people are like oh it just sounds so hard like polyamory just sounds so hard I'm like well monogamy is pretty challenging too <laughs> like relationships are <laughs> challenging in a beautiful way and so um, yeah I think that's really important what you're saying about refining our our terms of quote-unquote evaluation longevity and success de, de disentangling those things yeah absolutely so what do you see as um like the intersection of your activism work and the i'll say function is maybe not the right word but like the contain the container that these play spaces provide how do you see those things intersecting so i see them intersecting in a few ways. I mean, first off, like having a framework for thinking about um, inclusion and diversity and like being sort of socially aware and um, and trying to invite um, a pretty wildly divergent community in terms of like ideology or even like political awareness at all um, to also like behave and speak in ways that support our community's goals of inclusion uh, has been like pretty big and important and that's been informed by my time as an activist and organizer and like uh trainer um on you know systemic racism um so um I'd say another big piece is in how we deal with consent violations when they happen. So, um, you know, we have um, adopted an approach rooted in transformative justice um, that, um, you know, like we're, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to orient away from disposability in a way and and um that is another thing that's like been informed by 
like my time as, as an organizer and um 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 yeah, we, so we, we wrote a, an accountability, uh, consent and accountability policy that was shared pretty widely around like the sort of sex positive world and that it has informed a number of spaces, like sort of thoughts as they, uh, construct their own policies. And, you know, we've adopted the Bay Area's Transformative Justice Coalition's, um, uh, accountability pod model is like one of the technologies um we use when a breach has happened um and you know we work with folks um to uh form accountability pods and you know really just like take full responsibility for um the impacts of their actions or behavior and um construct or design like a road towards um like transformation so that like hopefully uh you know the idea is that folks can can have a path to like rebuilding the broken trust like with the community mm. Mm. and so and in a pod like are you holding what does a transformative justice circle look like in this context? Like, are you actually bringing together the, I don't know, violator feels strong, but the consent, the person, you know, the two people implicated within a circle or what, how do you actually build or rebuild in that way? Uh, I would say that that mediation um, is not a core aspect of the approach, partly because, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to um, force someone who has been harmed to, like, do a bunch of, like, extra emotional work, you know? <laughs> um, the way I think about this, I mean, I, I you know, uh, I, I went back as I was, like, uh, me and my, my co-producer, Misha, were, like, writing the policy and, like, thinking about it. I went back and reread John Locke's second treatise in civil government, where he like talks about, um, you know, the, the role of, of, uh, the state in like meeting out punishment. Like one of the things that people do when they come together and like form a society is like the individual gives up the right to revenge. And like the state is like the only sort of like power that has that right under like the compact of government. And, you know, I don't think that we are a government and I don't actually think that we have the capacity uh, to do punishment well, you know, but, um, you know, we basically say like, if you, if you as a person who has been harmed, um, uh, if you as a person who has been harmed um, want to like, go the punishment route, we will totally support you in like engaging with the criminal justice system, et cetera. But like, that's not what we do here. And, you know, here's sort of how we're going to handle it in our, in our space. And, and, um, um, which isn't to say that like, there aren't consequences for one's actions, you know, like right. if you violate like the trust of the community in some egregious way, then you may lose access to the community until that trust is rebuilt. And these accountability pods 
are one path to rebuilding that trust. And what an accountability pod is, is it's essentially a group of people, um, ideally people who like you have some relationship with, who are like invested in seeing you do better, you know, like being accountable for the harm that you do, mm. um, who like support a person in their path towards like accountability and transformation. Mm-hmm. Like, so they, you know, they help provide like, because accountability work is, is hard work, you know, like as a society, we generally um, haven't like, like built the muscles of accountability very deeply, particularly for men. You know, I think that's, that's true. And, and um, most of the people who we've had to engage in these processes have been men or at least assigned male at birth. And so, um, um, you know, that's a, that's a real, that's a real thing, you know? Um, and so um, approaching that failure of our society with like a degree of like compassion and, mm-hmm. and with a focus on like the outcome of transformation, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, um, you know, what, what these accountability pods are, are about. And, um, you know, what we, like the goals that we set in Bonobo for accountability are, um, 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 you know, one, we want to see evidence of, of like taking full responsibility. Um, second, we want to see some evidence at the end of a process of transformation. We want to see evidence that, that someone like actually understands, you know, like what happened and um, that they um, have developed and internalized strategies for, you know, um, addressing whatever it is went wrong that led to the breach. Um, and then, um, the third thing is that, you know, we would like to, to the extent possible, sometimes it's not possible, but we want to like see some evidence of like restoration, you know, some like, uh, attempt to contribute to the well-being and wholeness of someone who was harmed or to the container of the community that was harmed right mm-hmm. and so and so like once um a person in their pod have like gone through a process and sort of like gotten to this point then you know they can be sort of evaluated for re-entry into the community if indeed they were suspended as a condition of um or as a, as a consequence of whatever happened. Mm-hmm. I, as you're speaking, I mean, I think that's all very, um, first of all, I love applying lock to play party space. Very original. Appreciate that. <laughs> and, um, <No> problem. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and accountability, I think is just a really great word when this is what we're talking about this. And I, it brought me back to thinking about like the kindergarten space that we started off speaking about because it acknowledges how there is so little education. And I think that a lot of consent violations so often are subtle and like it's due to someone being misinformed or just not conscious and aware 
you know, there are also, of course, many more egregious violations, but it's when it's in that sort of murky ground, I think that, um, that it gets interesting and challenging. And, and so I think to create a container where it's not about just rejecting someone without any sort of education about what went wrong and, you know, that, that holding, holding someone still in community feels really important as we, as a culture continue to figure out how to navigate these situations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yes, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I mean, not everybody is that into transformative justice, you know, like, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I can imagine that a lot of people have probably had experiences with, you know, restorative justice circles or transformative justice circles that like went wrong because they were like under-resourced or not set up for success or whatever. We really like sort of understand that because like yeah. this stuff is hard because it's like, I mean, like for the same reason that non-monogamy is hard, right? It's not hard um, <clears throat> because of like anything about itself. It's hard because life is hard, but like <laughs> that there isn't, but, but there isn't like a bunch of scaffolding just like, passively set up in society to help us like deal with it <laughs> you know like there is with like monogamy or like there is with carcerality right, right. so um yeah yeah and i think that so then there's this parallel because there's the the invention of new culture with polyamory with just um with these play spaces too right it's that you you started off the conversation speaking about you're really creating a culture and so um I think there's a real parallel in terms of erotic exploration as well. It's like, how do we, how do we, in the absence of scaffolding or in the recognition that the scaffolding we do have is flawed and myopic and problematic, like how, how do we um, unlearn and then reinvent? And of course, just having, doing that in our own personal erotic lives is like an exercise in that as well. And then how do we bring that into society and these reconstruction yeah and that that concept of unlearning is so important and i think that it's like one of the one of the most frequently underestimated or like unconsidered challenges of like being in sex positive or non-monogamous community or spaces or lifestyle you know mm-hmm. um it's like you know, as a human being, uh, like through no fault of your own, you have internalized a lot of messages, uh, of habits, you know, um, a lot of narratives, um, about the way the world should be and, and, um, you know, what we are trying to do is like creating a space, um, that, compassionately you know lets people not just like learn something new but also do the slow work of unlearning the you know perhaps like counterproductive stuff that um you know makes it harder again (laughs) to be like non-monogamous or to orient towards towards the new thing and Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the cool things about about having a community of like sort of built around these like play parties and these like expressions of the erotic is that you know there's this like very 
powerful reward <laughs> for you know unlearning, right? Like like uh, uh, you know you get access to like community and connection and sensuality and sexuality and pleasure and touch and you know what I mean and 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 like uh, as much depth as you want and and so on and and to me that is um a a powerful reward for you know like doing that work do, 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 doing that work of of unlearning exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, can you speak to the name, to Bonobo, how that name emerged? Yeah, totally. So um, uh, there is a book called Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetta, who um, basically write about the question of whether human beings are naturally monogamous it's a critique of of the of the idea that you know is held by by some that human beings are naturally monogamous um from a an evolutionary biology perspective now or evolution evolutionary psychology excuse me um you know that that field is is kind of bullshit but uh it's, it's a take on it it basically says that like human beings are uh evolutionarily equidistant between chimpanzees and bonobos and uh chimpanzees uh have these like very sort of violent aggressive um uh patriarchal cultures um where bonobos have uh, i think the reality is actually that bonobos aren't as peaceful as people think they are but they, they have they have these uh they, they have these uh cultures that are marked by more complex conflict resolution and alliance building and specifically like they use sexuality to like mediate conflict and to create connection and you know like a quick hump is like a bonobo handshake in many respects <laughs> uh <laughs> you know they're they're just as likely to like sort of do a quick a quick hump or gg rubbing you know general general rubbing uh as they are to like offer fruit or do grooming or like other you know like sort of similar primate you know, bonding activities. Um, and so uh, Ryan's argument is basically that human beings are uh, sort of uh, like, like we actually like have a choice, like we're situated between chimps and bonobos and we see evidence of human societies that are built in more chimp-like militaristic structures. And we see evidence of human societies that are built in more like communal, peaceful, free-flowing bonobo-like structures, right? And um, and that was the inspiration behind, uh, you know, having the bonobo be our sort of mascot. I love that. I love that. Well, just to close, I'm curious how you are keeping the community alive in times of COVID and also how, in terms of polyamorous practice, like... What? How are you navigating that the network and the personal and then the extended network? Yeah, great question. So Bonobo has over, I mean, close to three thousand people at this point who have 
attended our events and, you know, been connected to us in, in some way or another. And um, we have a Facebook group that, um, you know, we have used for a long time as a sort of online gathering place when we're not doing in-person gatherings. Um, and that, like the online space, uh, has been just a huge resource for people um, as they've navigated the waters of COVID for finding housing, for finding connection, for feeling like they're still connected to the non-monogamous world, even if their individual practice has perhaps become more necessarily monogamous based on you know, their own personal circumstances or risk factors or whatever. Right? So that's... That's one piece. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, so uh, when the pandemic hit, um, we were planning to throw our second party of the year on March 14th. And, um, you know, we canceled the party a, a week before that. And um, my uh, business partner, Misha, and I, just immediately started strategizing about what we could do uh, to create as much connection as possible during a time of like profound disconnection when there was a lot of disappointment, when there was a lot of fear, when people like just didn't feel like they knew a lot. We didn't know a lot about, about, you know, what was safe and what wasn't, you know, uh, people were locked in their homes. And so um, we just came up with this, approach of like bringing everything online. Uh, we've done virtual play parties. Um, we're doing them weekly for a while. And then after about two months, they became uh, every other week. And uh, mo more recently in October, uh, we started doing them monthly. Um, uh, we, we were doing like a monthly happy hour in real life. Uh, and we decided that that would just become a weekly virtual happy hour. Um, we uh, started a daily online angel room. So uh, people could just like pop in from noon to one, uh, Monday through Friday. And then we expanded seven days a week. And then it became seven days a week and two evenings. Now it's back down to just five days a week, Monday through Friday. But, uh, you know, noon to one, there is this space that people can just like pop into and expect that there's going to be someone there who's oriented towards just like listening and, um, you know, sort of gently facilitating the space when there are multiple people and, you know, making sure that, that people feel like, uh, a sense of connection, you know. Um, we uh, have started using the icebreaker.video app, which is like one of my favorite video apps. Oh, I don't know about it. Oh, it's so great. Um, so it's kind of like the Zoom um, like breakout room feature, but ba basically you sign in and everyone who signs in gets like dumped into like a text chat room. And um, um, the person organizing the event can start like a game and then like everyone gets, gets matched into uh one-on-one -on -one chats and you have the opportunity to um, like set up questions or conversation prompts with each round. And so we have like, 
a whole like spreadsheet full of prompts about um you know from like personal stuff to you know like sort of emotional vulnerability to stuff about the community to stuff about like you know flirting and sexuality and so on and so forth and and we just like sort of uh, you know BDSM and and we'll and we like have different rounds on different topics. We even like created uh, some games. One of our volunteers uh, came up with a game called uh, Name That Sex Act, <laughs> where <laughs> like you're given you're given just like the name of a, a ridiculous name of a sex act, and you know, and and you have to like make up a description for it. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. And so uh, we were doing that weekly for a while and then it became now that's also a monthly event. But, you know, so we basically just, you know, have spent the last oh, we started like a, a weekly interview series where I interview different sex culture creators every week. And so I've talked to uh, just such an amazing, amazing group of folks, um, you know, Carol Queen and Bossy Easton and. Shay and Stephanos and Polly Superstar from Kinky Swan and just like, I mean, just uh, like the, the Kevin Patterson um, for Love Is Not Colorblind and um, is a Polly organizer himself in Philadelphia. Like, I mean, just like all these just amazing, amazing folks who are um, brilliant and soulful and ethical sex culture creators. And mm. um, yeah, it's been really really great um uh, we're going to talk with jessica fern who just wrote that book called you secure mm. in a few weeks um yeah i'm gonna link to all of these and follow up with them <laughs> this is good uh good intel always always happy to share contact yeah. yeah um i hadn't heard of that book it sounds the poly secure what is it called oh yeah poly secure it's Polysecure. a fantastic book um basically you know, a lot of the literature on polyamory mm-hmm. is kind of polemical in many respects. Like mm-hmm. it's about, like the sort of philosophy of polyamory and right. like how it's done and the ethics and so on. Um, but there aren't a lot of resources that look at non-monogamy from the perspective of trauma or uh, attachment theory. And mm-hmm. so this is a book that tries to bring those threads in written by a therapist for lay people but also as a way of informing mm-hmm. therapists who are like doing clinical work with with uh folks who might be in non-monogamous relationships so anyway yeah it's it's amazing cool what what is a play what does an online play party look and feel like i mean different people do it differently of course but right. um yeah, so basically we're on an online video platform, that's our well named. And um and it looks like a gallery view where people are just doing all kinds of things. You have some folks who are couples or, you know, small pods of people who are on camera playing. Um sometimes uh a lot most of mostly you have a bunch of like individuals mm-hmm. and we invite people at the beginning of the party. So, so we start the party actually with an icebreaker. So it will do that icebreaker app and like we'll give people a chance to really connect with each other and to like create connections and build trust and maybe get some flirtation started. And then we'll do an opening circle, a uh, really brief one. And then we'll uh, sometimes have like a burlesque dancer or something to help get people in the mood. And then we'll, we'll, um, we'll do like a meat market where we'll invite people to speak their desires uh, into the space. And 
so maybe meat market m e t not m e a we all hold up our meat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um so yeah we'll we'll invite people to um to like share either you know uh, verbally or in the chat of the app um you know the kind of things they'd like to receive or the kinds of things they'd like to offer or the kinds of connections they're looking to make or whatever or and, and people will sometimes just have these like really uh fun things like one person is like really into uh, receiving compliments, you know, and there's another person who like has really just stepped into her inner cam girl and just like just puts on an amazing show. And you know, other people like sometimes I'll like, um, you know, uh, lead people in you know, sort of group butt plug insertion at a particular <laughs> time, you know. <laughs> and awesome. so we just try to like make it like really fun and participatory and uh and then people actually do a fair amount of like flirting via the the chat and will encourage people because like we, we want everyone's about uh, uh, microphones to be off unless they're making sexy noises like we don't want like conversation right. um we'll encourage people that like if they're having like a one-on-one connection with someone they want to be hands-free to have their phones handy and right. to like use their phones to like actually like talk with someone through like a distance mm-hmm. scene you know mm-hmm. wow that sounds pretty awesome. I love, I'm like the digital view. That's just, it's like a bunch of little peep shows, but participatory peep shows. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's very, um, you know, sort of exhibitionistic, but also very voyeuristic. And, um, you know, uh, like you might be in a scene with like one other person, but like everyone's watching and you might get like a bunch of compliments in the chat from people who are like, oh my God, that's so hot, you know, what you're yeah. doing. And yeah, it's just it's a lot of fun. That sounds really fun. Well, William, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really rich and I hope to be able to attend one of your events once we're able to meet again and perhaps virtually before then. For sure. Yeah, I would love to have you. Thank you so much, Leanne. This was fun. If this conversation turned you on, go ahead and drop a five in the ratings, subscribe, send it to a friend. We think it's pretty sexy when you do that. Special shout out to Ova Moon, a multivitamin and supplement for womb-bodied folks that helps regulate the cycle and do all sorts of wonderful things for the body. It's amazing when the body gets all its nutrients, you're like able to live your best life. Um, the founders and creators are some of the best women I know. I can vouch for their integrity. And if you use the special discount code strippers and sages, you will get just that a discount. Thank you to Ben Hufrat for scoring and mixing and editing all of season one and for his continued guidance on the show. We still are using his fantastic music that he created. Thank you to Liliana Estes for her incredible work on this episode and various others. She is mixing and editing and getting into the groove and we love her for it. Thank you to Casey Odesser, Isla Khan and Sasha Carney for their fantastic research and development and prep for all of these interviews. For more information, tune in to strippersandsages.com. We are posting resources, transcripts, and more information about all of our guests. So please join our community and join the conversation.